Hey there, and welcome to the Box Office Watch podcast, where we keep watch on how much money movies are making and why. This is the show recapping the weekend of September 10th through the 12th, 2021. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Hope everyone is doing well out there. As I noted last episode, I'm just back from a family vacation that went through Monday, uh, and then on said vacation, my 11-year-old Pekinese decided he wanted to be an Olympian gymnast and went tumbling down the stairs at the Airbnb. Uh, so we had to go to the vet just to make sure everything was still in one piece, delaying my recording uh, back another day. Luckily, no broken dog bones on the doggo, but as a result, again, I'm writing this and recording it on Wednesday um, and putting this out Wednesday evening. Um, so, you know, we don't have a lot. There's not a lot of lead time before this coming weekend, but it's a lot of relevant box office news. So let's hop straight into it, shall we? Uh, going into this weekend's box office numbers, the big question was whether or not Sang chi would hold well or if it would have similar drops to Black Widow. Uh, Deadline had forecast about a 60% drop going into the weekend, a bit steeper than the 55% average of pre-pandemic MCU films, but between the holiday weekend and the post-pandemic factor, uh, 60% seemed like a pretty reasonable take for what an MCU's film drop would be, if somewhat unexciting. A reminder that Black Widow ended up having a 68% drop in its second weekend due to a mix of the film's last lackluster reception as well as the looming specter of premier access leading away many repeat and second weekend viewers. Well, for those like myself who really wanted Sanchi to do well, our faith was rewarded. In first place, Sanchi came in with a 54% drop, beating expectations to make $34.7 million this weekend in 4,300 theaters, a per theater average of $88,070, and a running total in its second weekend domestically of $144.5 million. That's already good for the fourth highest total domestically for the year so far, and also has passed the Incredible Hulk's domestic total of $134.8 million avoiding being the lowest grossing MCU film so far. Uh, the second weekend also is higher than any second weekend we've had all of 2020, including Bad Boys for Life, $34 million. And so the, the next sec second weekend that would beat it would be, I believe, uh, The Rise of Skywalker in 2019. Also, percentage-wise, uh, the 54% drop is the 8th best drop uh, in the MCU between Thor Ragnarok and Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, Sang-Chi crossed the $100 million mark in just 5 days, uh, beating Black Widow's pace, which took 6 to get there and is the fastest post-pandemic. Um, it's currently pacing ahead of Black Widow at the 10-day mark, uh, being ahead by about $12 million. So it go on to do about $250 million domestically when all said and done, uh, putting it in the realm of Doctor Strange and Captain America Winter Soldier within the MCU, which, while still in the bottom half of MCU films, isn't bad considering it came out in the pandemic. Uh, internationally, Sanchi has hit $112 million overseas in 42 markets for a worldwide total of $256.7 million, good for the 8th highest grossing film of the year so far. Still no China release, which may be in jeopardy due to some comments that Simu Liu made a couple years back regarding his parents leaving poverty in China to come to the States. Uh, we're still waiting to see if that September 23rd release date materializes for Sanchi. Um, that being said, I'm terrible when it comes to forecasting international grosses, but numbers I've seen thrown around are maybe $450 million without China, maybe $50 million with. Um, of course, the ripple effects of shang -Chi's performance are arguably the bigger story here. Um, as my family was driving out of the city on Friday, while I still had service on my phone, I saw the story that Disney announced based off of Thursday numbers for shang -Chi and extrapolating what his weekend's hold would be, um, that it would commit to a theatrical-only release for the rest of the 2021 films. 
uh, kind of the opposite of what uh, the end of the uh, HBO Max ended up doing. Um, and this is both on the Disney and the 20th century side. Um, in in particular, these include Ridley Scott's film The Last Duel coming October 15th, uh, 20th century's animated film Ron's Gone Wrong October 22nd, uh, Chloe Zhao's MCU entry The Eternals coming November 5th, Steven Spielberg's West Side Story coming December 10th, and then The Kingsman coming uh, December 22nd. Uh, these all have a 45-day theatrical window before coming to VOD and Disney+. Plus. Uh, in addition, their animated film Encanto will release on November 24th, but that will have only a 30-day theatrical window coming to Disney+, Plus on December 24th, as opposed to 45 days. Uh, my guess here is that they're trying to both nab the Thanksgiving and Christmas watching periods, as well as to account for parents who might still be a little hesitant to bring their kids to theaters uh, in the winter. Um, there's also the possibility that this ends up going to a limited premiere access window in that 30 to 45 day period, uh, but who knows entirely for sure. I don't. Uh, overall, though, this is a big win for movie theaters who had been haunted by the possibility that Disney would return to premiere access. Um, and of course, many other studios may have other ideas, but Disney is the biggest game in town right now, and they're the ones that matters most in this conversation, uh, especially since they're likely going to be the lead of the box office uh, for the rest of the year. Um, now we'll see if this if, if Premiere Access returns in some form in the future, but I think experiments with the day and date release model for Disney are over for the time being at least. Uh, now while we're talking Disney, you know, they also released a bunch of new dates for through 2024. Um, a bunch of these are untitled films for Searchlight, 20th Century, and Disney Live Action, uh, including 20th Century getting a bunch of films canceled. Um, and in and, and a bunch of these dates are being shuffled around, so I won't get into the, the details for those, but a couple of interesting high points. Um, Guillermo del Toro's horror remake of Nightmare Alley, um, I believe 20th Century, is getting a December 3rd, uh, or is getting a December 17th, sorry, wide, uh, wide release after a December 3rd limited release later this year, probably to put it in contention for Oscars consideration. Uh, the animated Bob's Burger film is coming out May 27th, 2022. Uh, the live action My Little Mermaid remake is coming out uh, May 26th, 2023. There are two Pixar films set for 2024 in March and June, and then the four MCU films coming 2024 in February. May, July, and November, which is kind of nuts at how many there are that year. Um, and then Avatar 2 is still set for the 2022, has not been moved in a while, so I think that might actually materialize next year. Uh, anyway, heading back to the top five, we have another Disney film. Uh, we have second place Free Guy dropping a good twenty, a good thirty-seven percent, uh, dropping in week five for five point five seven million dollars in three thousand six hundred sixty-five theaters per theater average of fifteen twenty-two. Current domestic total has crossed the hundred million dollar mark to one hundred one point six million dollars, adding on one hundred seventy-four point seven million internationally, including seventy-six point three million from China, which I believe beats out Tenet's total there. Um, it now sits at two hundred seventy-six. $3 million globally. In third place, we have James Wan's new horror film, Malignant, uh, which was a day-and-date release on HBO Max. It ended up making $5.4 million in 3,485 theaters per theater average of $15.59. Now, not a terribly great opening. James Wan's other film for the summer, Conjuring the Devil Made Me Do It, was also a day-and-date release on HBO Max and ended up making $24.1 million in its opening weekend before selling on $65 million total. And apparently, Conjuring also opened on HBO Max to 53% more households watching than Malignant. Uh, Malignant reportedly had a $40 million budget, which is really high for a horror film, so I think it's going to struggle to even break even between 
between the day and date cannibalization and the C plus cinema score rating with 78% for critics on and 52 for audience on Rotten Tomatoes. I haven't seen the film myself, but the consensus seems to be it's a little bit too weird for general audiences. Um, uh, but the word of mouth from the horror community seems to be that they tend to like it. Um, Hereditary, you know, another similarly weird horror film, uh, had a similarly low opening a few years back, but like that over the week. So um, that that being said, again, Malignant does have a stacked October to release it with some other horror films coming up. Um, it's going to be an uphill climb for sure. Um, now there there was some some indications that maybe you know the fact that. Um, Apparently, the, the while while Warner officially hasn't released the individual day numbers, uh, some people were tracking the individual day numbers, and you know the the weekend drops from day to day actually were pretty flat, uh, which is a pretty good indication of good word of mouth. But the fact that it's coming out on HBO Max again is going to cannibalize that word of mouth effect uh, in future weeks. Um, there is one small win for *Malignant*. Uh, it's one of the rare R-rated film horror films to be distributed in China, um, and in fact came out on streaming this past weekend as well as in theaters. Um, overall, it totaled $9.5 million overseas, um, with some markets having an early release last weekend uh, for $14.9 million total globally. Uh, in fourth place, you have another horror film from Universal, uh, Candyman, dropping 54% in its third weekend uh, to $4.7 million in 3,279 theaters per theater average of 1452 and running total of $47.9 million. It did come out on VOD as of this uh, past Friday as part of Universal's 17-day theatrical window agreement, um, which means its legs are probably going to be cut off coming going forward. Um, adding in $13.6 million offshore, its running total is now $61.5 million dollars globally uh, reportedly its budget was 25 billion dollars so you know it's not bad even it's not a runaway success uh, finally, in fifth place, we have Jungle Cruise hanging in there from Disney at week seven at $2.3 million, a 42% drop in 22,764 theaters, per theater average $842, running total of $109.7 million domestically. Um, another $86.9 million abroad, its total now sits just under $200 million mark, uh, pretty much a production budget. Um, I guess Premier Action really saved this film's, film's bacon as, again, uh, this one does have a sequel coming up. Outside the top five, we have a couple of specialty releases. Oscar Isaac's crime drama, The Coward Counter, opened to about a million dollars in 580 theaters for a per theater average of 17.92 in eighth place. Uh, Chris, the, the Christian documentary, So Me the Father, opened to $700,000 in about a thousand theaters for a ninth place total. Uh, and then the rock climbing documentary, The Alpinist from Roadside, had a fairly high per theater average of 18.53 off of $318,000 in 172 theaters um, at 12th place. Um, as far as some some films drop from places some from films dropping theaters, uh, the Protege dropped about a thousand more theaters down to less than four hundred, uh, making only one hundred twenty seven thousand dollars in sixteenth place. Uh, the second highest theater drop was Respect at tenth place, uh, down eight hundred theaters to only thirteen oh seven, making five hundred eleven thousand dollars this weekend. And then Black Widow nor uh, narrowly avoided having the worst legs of the MCU by coming in at two point two seven eight three times uh, its opening weekend so far ahead of Civil War's multiplier of 2.2780. Um, and then in addition, Snake Eyes has ended its domestic run at a pitiful $28 million. 
Overall, total box office dipped down again uh, below $100 million to $60.9 million total. Uh, this coming weekend has pretty much no major releases worth noting. Uh, Clint Eastwood, at 91 years old, has another Western from Warner Brothers as a wide release, again, also coming on HBO Max, called Cry Macho. Uh, box Office Pro forecasts it to be $7 to $12 million opening. And apparently, Open Road uh, has a film called Cop Shop, which I don't know anything about, but Box Office Pro's forecasts at $2 to $7 million. Um, I am keeping an eye on some limited releases. Uh, Searchlight's Eye of Tammy Faye, starring Andrew Garfield, um, as well as Justin Chan's Korean-American adoptee story Blue Bayou from Focus Features. And then the weekend of the 24th, we have the Dear Evan Hansen musical that seems to have an either loved or hated reviews so far. Uh, box office post forecasting at the $6 to $15 million. And in October, we have The Addams Family, uh, which is on VOD as well as in theatrical, forecasted for the $12 to $22 million from MGM. And The Many Saints of Newark, Soprano prequel, which is on HBO Max, much to the displeasure of the director, uh, forecasted for $15 to $25 million. And then Venom, Let There Be Carnage, forecasted to $45 to $60 five million dollars uh pre-sales are apparently so far half of what sang chi was now, Aaron Nasley, much of the same situation with regard to theater closures are in effect. Australia is shut down. Europe is required proof of vaccination to attend theaters. Korea and Japan have a high number of cases, and most of Southeast Asia, aside from Singapore, have been shut down. Um, Indonesia's capital of Jakarta did open this past Tuesday with Sangchi, so hopefully that bodes well for the recovery over there and for Sangchi's overall total. Uh, we also did get the sort of pre-sales for No Time to Die in the UK, Bond's home country. Pre-sales have been through the roof, even with surge Pricing on tickets, uh, raising prices up to 50% higher than the average uh, ticket price. Uh, the four-day number for bond in the UK should be about 20 million pounds, uh, which, according to one expert, would be akin to the US having a 200 million dollar US dollar opening, which would be huge. Um, the UK opening for bond in, is September 30th, ahead of the October 8th release in the US. Um, I believe bond definitely does open in MCU films over there, so this is going to be big. Also opening earlier abroad is the space epic Dune, with France and some other select European countries actually getting the film uh, tonight, the uh, September 15th, uh, which due to time zones you may already have heard about. Um, and, you know, some more countries will be opening over the course of the week, uh, which is about a month ahead of the U.S. October 22nd release. Uh, in Russia, apparently Dune has had the best pre-sales post-pandemic so far, with over $250,000 worth of tickets sold, with only a day more before its release there, potentially hitting 500000 which would match Spider-Man Far From Home, which opened at $9.5 million over there. Now, while director Denis Villeneuve initially wanted to be a theatrical exclusive release, um, and granted, he still wants you to see it on the biggest screen possible, which I plan to do so, uh, he has also conceded that a day-and-date release to HBO Max starting October 22nd is the way to move forward. He said it's to help you know, fight the pandemic, but other sources suggest that you know uh, he got assurances from Warner Brothers that even if the film doesn't do well at box office, if it comes out on HBO Max, on HBO Max and is well-received there, a sequel could still be greenlit. Um, he had originally planned to film the two the two parts of the story back to back uh but that that plan was axed um you know understandably so given the budget it would require for a you know somewhat risky move um allegedly mortal Kombat has had which had a terrible uh box office performance all um all told but killed it on streaming on hbo max is having a number of spin-offs or sequels being developed um off of the hbo max performance uh, estimates for the international weekend for dune are about 20 million dollars uh, which is about in line maybe a little bit less than black widow's open Opening this summer in similar markets at 22.8 million uh, or 24.4 million for Dennis Villeneuve's uh, Blade Runner 2049 uh, several years back. 
And one last bit of international film total before moving to China. Paw Patrol the movie is now sitting at $92.5 million globally. It be pretty cool to see that hit $100 million. Now, as far as China goes, uh, Free Guy continues its run in its third weekend, dropping only 33% to retain the top spot at $12.3 million US uh, for, again, as we noted, a running total of $76.3 million. In second place, the local youth rom-com Stand By Me opened to $12 million for a four-day four opening. Uh, Raging Fire continues its uh, you know over-month-long run at an 8% drop um, uh, in week five, I believe, uh, Oh, sorry, in this week to $5.75 million for $186.6 million total to date. Uh, Chris Pratt's The Tomorrow dropped 55% in second weekend to fourth place at $3.5 million for a $14.5 million total. And then in fifth place, the new Pokemon movie from Japan opened to $3.4 million. Uh, also worth noting, Pixar's Luca seems to be winding down its run with one week left to go um, to get to a $13.5 million total so far in China. Uh, we also got confirmation that No Time to Die has cleared the China film censor board, so we can expect to see that release uh, over there as well, hopefully sometime in October. Now, some other headlines to, before we close out the show with my review of Shang-Chi. Uh, we got the analysis from analytics company Go Street Analytics saying that 2021's worldwide box office total should come to about $22.2 billion total, up 68% from 2020, but down 52% from 2019. Um, as of the end of August, we were at $12 billion total, equal to 2020's total uh, for the entire year. So these last few big hitters like Bond, No Way Home, among others, are going to be the real key to getting that additional $8 million. Uh, recently, it's going to be breaking down to about $4.5 billion domestically, $4.3 billion from uh, Europe and the Middle East and Africa, uh, $3.85 billion from Asia-Pacific, excluding China, um, $900 million from Latin America, and then, and then the top market being China with $6.6 billion total. Now, while Disney is going to be probably the leader of that global box office and they have committed to theatrical releases for the rest of the 2021 slate, Universal has moved their upcoming entry in the Halloween franchise, Halloween Kills, uh, to a day-and-date release both in theaters as well on their streaming service, Peacock, on October 15th. Now, this isn't the first time they've done this this year. Boss Baby 2 also opened on Peacock the same day as in theaters, and it ended up making about $100 million globally and $57 million domestically in theaters. Uh, my suspicion here is that this is less about not feeling confident in Halloween's kills after its, I believe, release at the Venice Film Festival, but more so that um, because it has a you know fairly low budget, you know, it's a Blumhouse production, and you know, the last Halloween film cost about $15 million to make, they're confident regardless it's probably going to hit at least that uh, in the opening weekend. Um, and so, you know, why not expand, you know, the offering of, you know, Peacock, which is generally not, not doesn't have the best offering at, compared to the other ones out there, um, you know, to try to make a little bit more for the streaming platform um, without, you know, risking too much for the, for the, um, for the theatrical release. Um, I think Peacock not having the adoption rate that, you know, Disney Plus or HBO Max might have makes a day and date release there just not as dangerous to theaters as it is here. Now, of course, that may cause some theater chains to not run Halloween Kills uh, if it violates an uh, existing theatrical window agreement, um, so that might impact the total box office. Is there. 
Another studio, you know, with a little light, slightly more focus on streaming, Paramount uh, CEO and chair Jim Giannopoulos is stepping down, and Brian Robbins, head of Viacom CBS's Nickelodeon Kids, will step in. Uh, rumors are that Giannopoulos's reverse, uh, re- uh, sorry, revere uh, reverence for theaters and emphasis on filmmaker relationship, as opposed to Robbins' enthusiasm for streaming, is the cause for the sift. Uh, kind of re- reminds me of a Jason Keeler situation uh, with HBO Max. Um, the the bomb of Snake Eyes, though, and the panicked move of the rest of the 2021 slate, um, you know, uh, specifically Top Gun Maverick, um, you know, right before Shang-Chi ended up killing it, uh, could not have helped Janopolis' position as well. Uh, there were also rumors that, you know, Sari Redstone, uh, the owner of Viacom CBS, is planning to try to either sell that or at least spin off maybe Paramount uh, to someone like Comcast, um, though those, you know, obviously are unconfirmed rumors at this point. Uh, either case, it's still interesting to see how Paramount's output over the next few years will shift um, as you know if they'll keep having a theatrical focus or more likely if they'll end up focusing on cheaper direct to streaming releases um, and if movie stars or really the singular movie star of Tom Cruise ends up staying with the studio or ends up taking his talents elsewhere. Speaking of movie, the uh, movie stars taking their talents elsewhere. Uh, behind the camera, you know, over the news, we can, we can, over the weekend, news broke that Chris Nolan, uh, who again had been particularly vocal about his displeasure at Warner Brothers' moves to have the 2021 films be day and date on HBO Max, um, was sopping around to different studios his next feature film about J. Robert Oppenheimer and the development of the atom bomb. Um, after multiple studios read his script at his uh, studio in LA, uh, Universal ended up walking away as the new home for Chris Nolan after a 20-year relationship with Warner Brothers, which is big news and probably one of the few few directors that this would be a big deal, um, as big a deal like this. Uh, the conditions, though, were pretty steep for Universal. A uh, $100 million production budget, uh, equal marketing spend, uh, total creative control over the project, uh, 20% of f- first dollar gross, which you know is basically a rev share before profits, though I'm not sure if that's actually part of the total you know, box office gross or just the theater uh, sale after the split with the exhibitors. And then a three-week period on either side of the film where a studio can release a competitive film. Um, presumably, right, like if, if Universal wants DreamWorks to release the Minions, that wouldn't compete with this, you know, uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer film. Uh, probably the biggest coup uh, for Nolan is that he demanded a 100-day, some say 100 10, some say 130 uh, day theatrical window uh, exclusive, exclusively, which is up from the now standard 45 day window, um, definitely up from Universal's 17 day window, um, and you know even longer than the 90 day standard uh, pre pandemic. Uh, Warner has been in, had been in early talks, though obviously didn't make it through to the end. Paramount was in the running until the news of you know streaming focused Robbins taking the helm uh, kind of came into play. Uh, Apple allegedly was willing to finance the film on, but on all elements except for the particularly long theatrical window and the final two studios in contention were Universal and Sony who you know has kind of in a recent interview stated themselves as kind of like a studio for hire willing to you know appease to the um to the uh, filmmakers not having their own streaming service. Um, I think Universal's infrastructure and marketing prowess and stability, um, you know, not being sold off like MGM and whatnot uh, is probably what put it over the edge for Nolan here. 
Uh, speaking of theaters, uh, AM, uh, AMC apparently had a $25 million, uh, ad campaign go out there to try to encourage people to come back to theaters, Nicole Kidman being the face of this campaign, um, which probably speaks to the, who the target audience. You know, we've seen 18 to 25s, you know, embrace coming back to theaters. Um, it's really that older audience uh, who might be more reluctant for health reasons to come back to theaters, uh, as we've seen with films with like such as Respect, um, and as more award-centric films who generally thrive off of the older audience come into play with the fall and winter months, um, they're definitely going to want to get that audience back into the theaters. And then finally, while it's not an award-centric film, it is a winter film. The Matrix Revolutions trailer came out last week and had the biggest 24-hour debut for Warner Brothers film to date. Uh, the YouTube channel had 16.1 million views ahead of Godzilla's 15.8 million views, Godzilla vs. Kong, um, plus more on other social platforms. So I, I anticipate this is going to be another big hitter for the studio. Um, of course, not as big, of course, as the most important news of the week. Uh, Baby Sark is getting a limited big screen release um, with Pink Fawn and Baby Sark's Space Adventure, courtesy of Iconic Events for an October 9th and 10th limited release. Uh, clearly the front runner for not only Best Picture of the Year, but also highest grossing film of all time. Anyway, to close the show, again, I put off talking my thoughts about Sanxi as a film last week, so let's do that segment of what I've been watching. Though, a quick mini-review, um, I also ended up watching Camilla Cabello's uh, Cinderella movie on Amazon Prime uh, two weekends ago, um, and while it's certainly no masterpiece, uh, James Corden really curses anything he touches at this point, in my opinion. Uh, it wasn't the worst thing to have on in the background. You know, as a jukebox musical, it was basically an excuse to just listen to a playlist of songs that were alright, and while the acting wasn't exactly the most subtle. Um, the plot itself, at the very least, was a little bit of a different treatment on the old tried and two tale of Cinderella with a bit more progressive take on that story. Um, overall, I gave it two and two stars out of five. But anyway, Sanchi. Uh, so first and foremost, obviously, again, I'm not going to be the most objective review to this just when it comes to the importance of this film for Asian representation in media. That being said, the highlights for me as a film, and this is going to be mostly spoiler-free, um, Tony Lung, first of all, is the truth. Um, I honestly hadn't seen most of his past filmography, but I really feel like I saw it at this point. The depth with which he added to Wen, Wen Wu's character threads the line both of the elements of being a father and all the complications that entail of loving your kid but also being harsh on them, um, a devoted husband, and also a, a feared semi-immortal warlord. Um, the way he conveyed so much emotion with just his eyes and the gravitas he he brings, while also a lightness to his martial arts, um, you know, and, and him being fleet of foot, as well as but also power behind them, really sold me on his moniker as the man with the electric eyes. In fact, his acting was so top level, it, it, in times it felt hard for other actors to really to stand up to that, right? While I don't dislike Simu Liu's portrayal as Shang-Chi, at times, in comparison, it just felt a little wooden uh, compared to the texture that, that Tony Leung portrayed. Um, but then again, I feel like anyone, um, especially a relative newcomer, uh, would kind of be in that situation against one of the legends of Hong Kong cinema. Also part of acting, the fight choreography. Now, not something normally you think about, but in the way the, the, the characters fought, really did a lot of heavy lifting non-verbally for their characterization. From the very first, arguably my favorite fight scene between Wen Wu and his to-be bride, uh, the contrast in his harder stances versus her more flowing styles and how they filtered down to sang Chi's own style and his character art incorporating both, really did a lot of storytelling without saying anything verbally. I praised the MCU choreography team when I was talking about Black Widow, and 
about how he could just recognize the style, the various fighting styles that Taskmaster was emulating without having it be laid out in front of you explicitly. And this film, this just took that to a whole other level. Um, I got to say, rest in peace to Brad Allen, who this film was dedicated to, who is the second unit director and, and stunt co coordinator for the film, who sadly passed away this past August. He was a member of Jackie Chan's stunt team, and his final film will be The Kingsman coming out later this year. Looking forward to that. Uh, going into the plot, it's kind of fortuitous that I did an episode on my anime podcast, yet another anime podcast, where I dove into Chinese anime Donghua and learned about a lot of uh, tropes of different um, Chinese fantasy stories uh, on the Zhangjia genre. Um, while obviously a product of the Marvel machine and the hero's journey in general, um, I love the film as an examination of a lot of different types of films. A Hong Kong wuxia slash kung fu martial arts film, a Chinese fantasy epic, even a bit of a crime story told through flashbacks. Uh, a lot of heart here also that really sells you on the growth of this one particular character and those around him. Was the writing perfect? Not necessarily, uh, but, you know, and, and in fact, it may have been a little overstuffed at time for some audience members. But then again, if you've watched Asian dramas, uh, be they Korean, Japanese, or Chinese, you'll be well-equipped to manage the entangled multiple plot points all at once um, and without making it feel too busy. Now, I'm not sure how I feel about, you know, the obligatory Marvel CG fight that happens at, in the third, you know, really the, the second half of the third act, um, which is kind of part and parcel for the for a Marvel film. Um, I really would have loved a much more intimate confrontation that didn't necessarily involve saving the world as the stakes, but rather really focused on saving the family, um, similar kind of like the smaller scope of the Ant-Man films. But at the very least, you know, especially with the post credit scene, it did set up Shang-Chi to be a major player in the coming phases uh, of the MCU and, you know, the, the Ten, the titular Tang rings themselves were a, pretty, a, a sight to behold, again, going back to the fight choreography. Now, moving over, you know, obviously this film is important for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is Asian representation. Now, we're still obviously waiting on the China release here, if that ever comes. Um, but I, if it does come, I'd like to think this can do well over there, as opposed to some other highlight films from recent years, such as Crazy Rich Asians or The Farewell, which, while they did well in the States, didn't really resonate with Chinese audience because... The Chinese, because the, those films were really about the Asian American experience, emphasis on the American part. Um, a foreign audience doesn't really get the, I don't feel would get the nature of, you know, the struggle of feeling like you have to be, the, the Asian American, I, I'm working on a, pod, on a separate podcast product about the Asian American experience, Asian American studies, and really the story of Asian American studies is one of not really belonging either in your Asian side or in the American side, but kind of being a synthesis on the two. And a lot of Asian American media exam this intersection. Um, obviously, that intersection isn't something relevant to an international audience, um, which is why you know I appreciate it being here. But also, again, I think it, it threads the needle where it's not overly so, right? So it may a little bit be a bit generic, but if you think about the film as the family drama, uh, cue the fast saga memes, um, with the conclusion that Sang can't reject his origins and part of his family that he may not like um, or be proud of, but he doesn't have to reject his own modern ideals either, and he can marry the two you know, in, in, in a way, right, and carry on the legacy of his father, but also his, his more modern American side, um, and neither is necessarily better than the other, ultimately makes it an Asian American story, but, you know, the Western, the the thing that Crazy Rich Asians and the Farewell did is kind of you know passing judgment to they pass judgment to some degree on the Chinese side, right? Like they they still said, oh, the Western experience is maybe you know more favorable to some degree, right? And that's I think the mistake that those films made uh, in terms of trying to play the Chinese audience, where Sang Chi I think will will tread well. Um, 
you know, if, if anything, there's more of a focus on that foreign element. Two-thirds of the film takes place in Asia itself. Now, Aquafina's character of Katie does someone dig into the Asian-American question of, you know, finding your thing and belonging, right? Um, it was a little bit underbaked, frankly, if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm completely honest. But I think most of the Asian-American representation in the film comes is you know a Minari right like the film that that was nominated for the Oscars this year where you know Minari is a film about the Korean American family but it's not about their Korean American ness it was very much a authentic Korean American experience where there are a lot of very specific cues and subtleties that resonated with the Korean American audience but it didn't really sign like oh look at how Korean American we are right um the best thing I think that it, that, that talks about this is there's a scene where Sang goes to Katie's family's place for breakfast and there's kind of the interactions with the family, the younger brother, the grandmother, the mother, and the way they interact with each other, and just let stuff in the background really sold me that they understood like what being Asian American was about. And they also did a great job of debunking Asian stereotypes, right? Katie being an amazing driver, for example, um, or I forget her name again, but the the, the, the newcomer who plays um, Zhang Ling, uh, who sang Chi's sister, um, you know, uh, she apparently during, you know, the COVID break went back. They were going to have her have, like, the, the blue colored streak of hair, which is, like, a trope for Asian women in film, which, you know, has, has some negative connotations, has some negative implications if you if you dive into the history of that. And she went back and had, you know, Marvel agreed to go back and either moving forward, not include that in her makeup, and then go back and CG it out of, of, of scenes that had already been sought. Um, and then, of course, you know, uh, Wen Wu, um, Tony Leung's character, being a very proud, very powerful warlord, in out front in the open, leading his army, as opposed to the sneaky Fu Manchu archetype um, of, of years past. Which, you know, speaking of Fu Manchu, and, and obviously that being tied to, some degree, shang kind of, you know, checkered uh, origin story within the Marvel, cinema, Marvel Universe in the comics, um, the fact that they brought Ben Kingsley on, who had played a character called the Mandarin, who was kind of appropriating the name, um, of that character uh, as, you know, one of Tony Stark's rivals from the comics, um, being, you know, granted, a, an Indian-British actor, um, but, you know, definitely definitely kind of appropriating the name of the Mandarin uh, from the, as a character in Iron Man 3, bringing him back kind of lean, not break, but lean on the fourth wall to provide commentary on how ridiculous that whole situation was, um, was a nice touch for Marvel to do, and granted, his character just by itself was a delight throughout the entire film, and again, tied into like, kind of like the larger cinematic universe, which even though this film largely could probably stand alone on its own. Overall, again, admittedly biased, I would probably paste this among my top five films uh, within the Marvel Cinematic Universe, possibly even higher if I think about it more, um, both, uh, again, as a film within the universe and a, an excellent standalone film, easily definitely going to make my, one of my favorite films of the year so far, easily five out of five for me. Uh, and with that, I think that's a wrap for this episode. You can submit ideas or news tips for what I should cover via email at boxofficewatchpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at BOWatchPodcast. You can find us also on Spotify, iTunes, or Google Play. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review. Or at the very least, tell a friend that any of that helps. If you're feeling extra generous, considering supporting us on Patreon, which makes me not only this show, but all the other podcasts that I've mentioned throughout, um, Links to all of that will be in our show notes. Numbers used in the show come from dnumbers.com. Intro and outro music from Kevin MacLeod at incompetech.filmmusic.io. Editing and production provided by Ninja Boy Media. Until next time, this has been the Box Office Watch Podcast. And remember, our watch goes on. Yeah.